Back in 2004, my brother-in-law, Becky's younger brother, um, Tim, collapsed and then died of a sudden heart attack. He was driving on a busy road at the time. Um, Evidently, though, he uh, experienced or felt some type of uh, something coming on. And so he had enough time to pull over to the side of the road and park his car. And evidently, he he had enough time, in fact, to to get out his phone, to pull out his phone. Uh, But then all of a sudden, um, he collapsed. When the police and the EMTs eventually found him, he was there um, um, experiencing um, that heart attack. Um, And they rushed him to the hospital. And when they got to the hospital, he had no... ID on him. No driver's license, no ID on him. So they registered him in that hospital just as John Doe. Just under that identification, John Doe. Nobody knew who he was. It wasn't until the police end up um, finding his phone and calling the last number that he had dialed on that phone which happened to be Becky's older brother, Steve, before they were able to identify who he was. I tell you that story because sadly, many of us, I think we go through our, our lives not knowing our true identity. We're like that John Doe. <laughs> and, and, and when that happens, that brings confusion. What's worse is, that most of us don't even realize it. I mean, we know our names, we know our our addresses, we know our families and and friends' names, but see, we don't really know who we are in God's eyes. We need to know who the author of our story is. This summer, we have been in a series, you've hopefully been with us, we've been in a series entitled Questions from Exile. Uh, Throughout the scripture, people of God are identified as um, um, sojourners in exile. In fact, the, the apostle Peter, in his very first letter, he addresses the ones he's writing to, he addresses to those who are elect exiles. That's who we are. Elect exiles. We are exiles. People living in a foreign um, Land, strangers in this post-Christian world. And because you and I, we are strangers as Christ followers, we find ourselves oftentimes with challenging questions about how to live. Questions that we've already asked uh, in this series. We've tried to address in a series like question like, how can I be a faithful witness at work? Or how do I navigate polarizing views among fellow Christians? And this morning, our question is simply this. Am I the author of my own story? So what we need to do is we need to begin by looking at who the Bible tells us is the author of our story. So I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Where else, right? Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 1, and you're familiar with this, Um, we find God just walking out onto the stage of this world and he announces himself. 
He doesn't begin with some long philosophical argument as to why he exists. No, he just announces who he is and he announces what this story is about. And one of the profound things that God reveals about himself here in this first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of this book of the Bible, is that he is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. God announces that he is the one who, who creates. And here's the incredible thing about this is that he doesn't create something from something else. No, he creates something out of nothing. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates light and he creates the seas and he creates land and he creates the plants and he creates the animals. And after each time that he you know, creates, we read, God saw that it was good. Six times. We read that. God saw that it was good. But then on day six, God creates the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you notice here that in these two verses, um, we're told three times that you and I are created in God's image. One of them in verse 26, then God said, let make man in our image after our likeness, two times in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Um, evidently, you know, you, you read that and you realize that God wants to make it very clear to us that we are special, that we're unique. In fact, at the very end, at the, after he has created humankind in his own image and after he has blessed them, male and female, the Bible says, God saw all that he made and it was what? Very good. Do you realize no other being was created in God's image? Not even the angels were created in God's image. Plants and animals, they were, they were created according to their kinds. But with human beings, God did something quite different. He made us in his image. Now, I want you to look again with me at uh, verse 27, because I want to do a little deep dive on verse 27 here. Um, I, I hope I don't lose you here, okay? So follow along with me. Notice the three parallel lines of poetry in verse 27, okay? The first line there lays the foundation on which we build, it builds the next two, okay? The fact that God created man in his own image. The second line basically repeats the first, except in a different order. You see that? The prepositional phrase, in his image, in the image of God, in the second line comes first. And then the subject, verb, object, okay? He created him comes at the end in that second line. Now, the third line also ends with subject, verb, object. He created them, 
okay? But I want you to notice something here, okay? I think I've got this on the, on the screen. The singular pronoun him in line two has been replaced by the plural them. You see how it got switched? Okay? But here's the biggest surprise of all. I want you to notice that the start of the third line, the noun pair male and female, takes place of the second line's prepositional a phrase in the image of God. Do you notice that? In other words, the second and third lines are poetically structured in parallel, communicating a direct correlation between the image of God and male and female. That is, our sex differences are part of what it means for us to reflect God's image. God, think about this, God could have created sexless humankind to reflect his image. But he didn't, did he? He chose to create humans as sexed beings, female and male. All of this, I want to let you know, all of this tells us that God is our author. Isaiah uh, puts it this way, O Lord, we are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Who's the author? Who's the potter? God is the author. God's the potter. We have all been made in his image. But we must also couple this truth that we've been made in his image with the reality of our sin, right? I mean, you know the story. In the Garden of Eden, um, God permitted Adam and Eve uh, to eat of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet after being tempted by Satan, they both fell in, into sin by eating that forbidden fruit. What was the fallout of that sin? Well, their sin brought fear and shame. Their it brought selfishness, as is witnessed in their shifting blame away from themselves. It brought death, both physical and, and spiritual. And the lasting consequence of it all is that Adam's act of disobedience, we are all sinners because of that. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, um, there is no one righteous, no, not one. This corruption is pervasive. It has distorted the image of God in all of us. Sin has changed our overall direction from obedience to rebellion. Listen, God is the author of our story, yet we live in a world because of sin that doesn't want to believe that. We live in a broken world that wants to believe that, you know, we are the authors of our story, that we write our own story, that each one of us creates our own identity. No wonder there's so much confusion in our world, right? Your post-Christian neighbors have bought into the philosophy that truth, well, it's subjective. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and... Uh, you know, everyone's truth, it's okay. Our world has rejected God as the, as the author and replaced him with 
ourselves. <laughs> My experience reigns supreme. I can be who I want to be. Back in 1875, a British poet named William Ernest Henley published a short poem that has become a, a calling card, I think, uh, of our post-Christian world. The poem is called Invictus. And it ends with these famous lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, I'm the only one who determines what my future will bring. I'm the one who is driving, uh, is sitting in the driver's seat of my life. It means um, it's all about me. I'm the author of my story. But God's word would tell us otherwise, wouldn't it? See, true identity is not what I do. For example, I'm a pastor, but that's not my identity. Nor is it how I feel. Hey, I feel happy today. That's not my identity. True identity is who I am. And the Bible tells us I am one who has been made in God's image. Yes, an image that's been distorted by sin because of the fall, but still one whose identity has been determined by God. God is the author of my story and your story. You say, well, uh, hey, great. Pastor, that's great, but see, I, I, I know that, I understand that, but what's the big deal? I mean, what's the big deal of, of, of God being the author of my story, that as a Christian, you know, my identity is supposed to be in Christ. What's the big deal? Let me give you two very practical implications from this truth. First, since God is the author, he cares what I do with my body. One of the consequences of sin is that we all get confused when it comes to our bodies and to our sexuality. We miss what God, the author, says. And God's word, I got to tell you, has a lot to say about our bodies. The biblical view is our bodies are good and, and sacred. When the Apostle Paul addresses the, the Corinthian church, he confronts the popular thought of that day um, that said the body was bad while the spirit or, or soul, that that was what was good. And Paul asks him this question. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <laughs> in Romans 12.1, Paul commands believers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Sometimes we hear, even in our Christian circles, I think, talk about the body just being a, a, a shell, you know, that covers the real you. But that isn't the Christian view of our human nature. Our bodies are a core aspect of who we are. We don't just have bodies. No, we are bodies. We're embodied now, without a doubt, we live in a fallen world. And as a result, not only has the image of God in us been distorted, but with it, our sexuality has also been broken. 
Bible tells us, you know, there are a lot of different heterosexual relationships that are sinful. Um, like a man sleeping with several other uh, different women or a husband cheating on his wife or a, even a committed monogamous relationship between cohabitating boyfriend and girlfriend. The sin of pornography has gripped and, and ruined many lives. And the truth is that God's standard for everyone when it comes to sexuality is one that is holy, that is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity, that's more than just simply not engaging in extramarital uh, sex. It conveys purity and, and holiness as a single person. Faithfulness is more than just avoiding illicit sex. No, it conveys covenantal commitment to one another. <laughs> now, the Bible also makes it clear that same-sex relationships are sinful. Leviticus 18.22 clearly forbids homosexuality, as does Romans 1.26 and 27. Because of this, Apostle Paul writes, God gave them over to shameful Lusts. Even their women exchange sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I don't know if you understand this or, or have, have studied this, but whenever Scripture talks about same-sex sexual relations, it always prohibits them, never affirms them. Now, to be honest, you know, because we are exiles living in a strange and foreign land, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the world around us is trying to sanitize and erase sin and call homosexual relationships, you know, good. They bought into the lie that they are the author of their own story. One of the most popular statements, you know, you hear today, arguments today, is being gay is who I am. It's who God created me to be. But numerous studies have been done um, asking the question if, if people are born gay, none of them are conclusive. Both those who are, are, are pro-homosexuals uh, and, and those who might be argued as not. It doesn't matter whether you, uh, you know, in fact, let me get this. American Psychological Association said this. No findings have emerged that permits scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. And listen, even if it's been, even it can be shown or, or believed that same-sex orientation is innate, I got to tell you, it doesn't mean it's permissible. Biology is in destiny. <laughs> we must point people to be born again. It doesn't matter whether you were born a, uh, a liar 
you must be born again. It doesn't matter whether you're born a porn addict, you, you must be born again. It doesn't matter whether you think you were born with any other sexual sin struggle, uh, you know, heterosexual sin struggle or, or homosexual sin struggle. You must be born again. Whatever condition we have, we are to be born, that we were born into this world, we need a total transformation. The kind, the only kind that, that God, our author, has made inexplicably possible through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I know there are a lot of uh, questions when it comes to this subject. We're not going to be able to deal with those questions all this morning. So what I've done is, in your bulletins, in your outline, you can see at the bottom, I've listed several good resources that you can use to continue to try to answer those questions that you might have. Or if you want, you know, call me, set up an appointment. I'd love to talk to you. But listen, before I move on, I've got to give you a couple of guidelines for future conversations that you might have with friends or family members who are gay. First one is this, show compassion. Love them. I know we love the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. (laughs) But what we fail to realize is that non-Christians hate that saying. (laughs) When you tell your gay friends, I love you, but I hate your sin, I got to tell you, they don't really feel loved. So don't say it. Just do it. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Of course you do. <laughs> um, I mean, the point that Jesus makes in that story is that we are to love our neighbor. Who's our neighbor? On well, the story, it's the Samaritan. It's our, in, our, in our story, it's the fact that the, those we perceive to be undeserving or uh, despised or even hated, those are the ones we are to love. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the National uh, uh, Evangelical Free Church Conference. Um, and here's one of the statements. They made a number of different statements. Uh, but here's one of the statements our denomination made at that conference. I want to read this because it applies to what we're talking about here. This is the statement. We do not believe that a person's biological sex should be separated from their self-perception as a man or a woman nor that the body should be altered when it does not conform to that self-perception. But we do believe that some people experience a distressing struggle between these two and that we must treat those who struggle in this way with love and compassion as we seek to help them with the truth and the power of the gospel toward the wholeness of a biologically sexed identity grounded in God's very good Design in creation as male and female. God is our author. God's our author. Second, I got to tell you, uh, you must pray and, and, and listen. Beginning with prayer is a, a way to remind ourselves that only God changes hearts. Not you arguing with them or, or yelling at someone. <laughs> Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. 
We must be still and wait on him. And also listen. If we want our unbelieving gay friends to listen to us, we must first listen to them, right? Show them kindness. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead to your repentance. Not God's yelling at us. Not God's condemning us, but God's kindness. So show kindness. Let me give you a couple of other additional guidelines for those believers here. If you're here this morning or listening online who might be struggling with sexual sin, homosexual sin or heterosexual sins, first remember that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul exhorts us, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Flesh is a term that means our our sinful nature here in this passage, okay? Paul is not talking about who we are, but rather he's talking about our fallen condition. And his point is that as believers, you and I, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And as such now, unlike before when we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us, before we were believers, now as believers, we have the ability to not sin. Finally, go back to your identity. If you're struggling with the sexual sins, go back to your identity. You are a new creation if you're in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been buried with, with Christ. You've been baptized into Christ and into his death and united with Christ in his resurrection. That's who you are. <laughs> Who's your author? God is the author of your story. Live into that. Let me give you another implication um, of this whole idea that God being our author. Since God is the author, he cares how I handle my resources. Not just how I handle my bodies, but also how I handle my resources. I'm going to take you to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29 in the Old Testament. And here in 1 Chronicles 29, understand that David, David is the king of Israel. And Israel at this time is at peace. And David wants to build a, a beautiful temple in Jerusalem for God. But before David gets started, God steps in and stops David. And he says, David, hey, great idea, David, but I can't let you build it. I can't let you build my temple because, listen, you have blood on your hands. You have fought too many wars. But listen, David, I will allow your son Solomon, the next king, to build my temple. And so David responds 
by doing everything he could, short of actually building that temple. I mean, he draws up plans for the temple. He does this huge fundraisers so they can have the money available for the temple. He, in fact, he gives from his own personal account and his retirement accounts so all of this temple can be built when he's gone. And in the middle of this, David stops and he gives praise to God. And in this prayer, we're given some insights into David's perspective on money and on his resources. Three insights, real quick, that I want to draw to. Let me start with verse 10. First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, Forever and ever yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted ahead above all. (laughs) David begins his prayer with just a a summary statement. And what he says is, God... um, This is all about you. Everything in life is all about you. You are sovereign. You are king. And then he says... For everything in heaven and earth is yours. In other words, everything belongs to God. It's all yours, God. It all belongs to God. I don't care what it is. You name it. It's God's. So here's the first insight. Everything belongs to God. He's the author. So everything belongs to him. Continuing on, verse 12. It says, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In other words, all my wealth, all my gold and silver, all my cars and houses and all my investments, David says, all my savings accounts, they all come from you, God. Second insight, everything comes from God. Continuing on, verse 12. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is... Uh, to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise you for your glorious name. In other words, God, all I have and all that I am has been given to me by you. And that's the third lesson. First lesson, everything belongs to God. Second lesson, everything comes from God. And third lesson, everything is distributed to us by God. (laughs) And our proper response then Because God is the author, is to honor God with everything. Our money, our resources, our time, our things, our stuff, (laughs) our lives, to honor God. One of the most famous stories in the Gospels is a story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. What a great story. Zacchaeus was that tax collector, in other words, a government-sanctioned thief, (laughs) And after he meets Jesus and has dinner with Jesus, um, Zacchaeus has this huge change of, of heart. He repents and he turns from his sins and he desires to be, be holy. And what's the result? He says, behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. <laughs> That's what happens when we realize That God is our author. Our perspective on our resources change. We realize like David, we realize that like Zacchaeus, 
that everything belongs to God. Everything comes from God. And everything is dispensed by God. And it becomes our desire then to honor God by honoring him with everything we have. Our money, our skills, our time, everything. 16 years after William Ernest Henley first published his short poem, Invictus, one I read a little bit earlier, referred to, the British preacher Charles Spurgeon offered another philosophy on life. On June 7, 1891, in the closing words of his final sermon, Spurgeon urged people to submit to a better captain for our soul, or in our imagery this morning, a better author. Spurgeon said this, every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You'll either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior, and you will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you'll find him so meek and lowly of heart that you'll find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain or author, <laughs> you'll go down on your knees and you would beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Friends, since God is the author of your story, all you do must be shaped by him as well. Might we all, all of us, fall on our knees before him as our author and serve him well. Let me pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you indeed are the author of our story. And we fall at your feet and we, we worship you. Thank you for the gift of your salvation. Thank you that you have given us your spirit and you have made us new creations. We desire to honor you with all that we have. In this strange and foreign world in which we live, Lord, would you keep us from temptation? At the same time, might we bless our city and our neighborhood for your name's sake. Give us the wisdom and grace to seek the flourishing of our city. Teach us how to live as exiles. Pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.